It is true that we cannot depend on government alone to create jobs or long-term growth. But at this particular moment, only government can provide the short-term boost necessary to lift us from a recession this deep and severe. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Laura Conaway. It's Friday, January 30th, 2009. And uh, that was Barack Obama, you heard at the top, uh, from a speech he made a couple of weeks ago. It was his big speech on the economic stimulus, and he delivered it at George Mason University. You might have heard Adam Davidson's story about that reaction at George Mason University a couple Planet Money podcasts back. Um, we'll get to why we played that clip in just one minute. But first, today's Planet Money indicator. Right. It is 3.8, or I guess I should say negative 3.8. That is the amount by which U.S. GDP, which of course stands for gross domestic product, shrank in the last quarter, this is the last three months of 2008, and that's on an annualized basis. So what that means basically is that GDP is basically all the money that people and business and government spend on stuff. And if it continued to shrink at the same rate as last quarter, it would be down 3.8% at the end of the year. So it's pretty bad. It's the, actually the worst number we've had in 28 years. Yeah. And there are other economic numbers you can point to. There are a couple of them on our blog, npr.org slash money. But for today, GDP really is the king of economic statistics. And that number is just going to suck all the air out of the economic cycle probably for a couple of days to come. It is the single proxy number, GDP, for how good or bad the economy is doing and, by extension, how good or bad all of us are doing. Right. I mean, it's like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily always correlate, but it's sort of the number that people just, if they want to get a quick snapshot, they'll point to that GDP number and say, this is, you know, GDP is bad, so probably people aren't doing it that well. Um, but which, never mind yes, that big king number. Exactly. Because <laughs> uh, we at uh, Planet Money like to come up with the, sort of our own numbers that put it actually a little bit more into, uh, uh, to bring it actually home. Um, and uh, you've got one on that front, right? Yeah, this guy Justin Ritchie pinged in from Charlotte, North Carolina, which so happens to be the headquarters for Bank of America. And Justin has been out there having some Craigslist adventures. He ran into kind of a funny coincidence. One of my roommates moved out. Uh, he, we go to UNC Charlotte, and uh, he graduated, and he moved out to Durham, and he took all the furniture in the house with him because it was his. And so my remaining roommates were like, well, we got to find some furniture. So we went on Craigslist, and we found tons and tons of listings of people selling their entire houses, basically. Uh, and so we found one that was a really good bargain, and uh, we went and talked to the guy, and we bought the furniture, and he said he was moving back to India because he worked for Bank of America, and he just felt it was a good time to move back home. So it was about a week later, uh, one of my roommates was going to buy an electronic drum set, went on Craigslist, he found a listing, uh, he bought the electronic drum set, and then that was also from another guy who worked for a bank, and he was moving back to India, and he had to sell his drum set. Alex, Justin wonders if maybe there's just a lot of anxiety in Charlotte right now, because a lot of that city's economy depends on the financial sector, especially, of course, Bank of America. Right, which is uh, headquartered there, right? Yes. Yeah, and Bank of America's stock has been bouncing around. It had fallen by as much as 54% at one point this year. Um, and, you know, they've 
they bought Merrill Lynch, which has given them all sorts of trouble. So yeah, you can't really. I don't think you can draw anything out of Justin's experience, except that maybe it's just a funny coincidence. I'll put a picture up on the blog. You can see what they bought. It's pretty funny. Right. It's not certainly you can't uh, you can't extrapolate a trend from uh, Justin's two experiences on Craigslist, but uh, but definitely there's um, you know it's an interesting uh, anecdote. You can envy the furniture. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, we have one last indicator, 43. As in Super Bowl 43, it's being played this Sunday between the Arizona Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Steelers in Tampa. And there's another game that goes along with this Super Bowl game, and that's the sort of the game of, uh, of economic predictions, sort of the, 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 how much the Super Bowl will actually help the host city. Uh, the NFL says that the Super Bowl gives a shot, and it, that it will give a shot to Tampa Bay of about $150 million. Um, that's a lot of money uh, for three days. And NPR's Mike Pesca talked to Philip Porter. He's an economist at the University of South Florida. He studies the economics of sports. And Porter tells Mike Pesca that there's just no way that $150 million could be right. He says for several reasons. First, most people would be spending money somewhere else if they weren't spending it on the Super Bowl. Right. It's not going to be an additional money, money being spent. Right. It's not new money being spent. But second, what the NFL predicts, that $150 million number, it's better than anything the whole county has ever produced ever. Um, their three-day record in the county is $138 million. Right. So we've never done in the entire county what they say is the direct spending effect, $150 million or $200 million. We've never done that in three days, buying cars, washing machines, television sets, shirts, clothes, uh, eyeglasses, food, everything that we do. The entire community of a million people has never done that in three days in our history. And they're, they're saying that the direct spending effect of the Super Bowl is, is $150 million dollars. That would have happened in these three days. So it's virtually impossible. We don't have the capacity. The people who support the Super Bowl, maybe the host committee and the NFL will say, well, it's not just that the things you can measure. It's the intangibles. Someone sees a city. He, they visit the city to go to the Super Bowl. They want to live there. They want to take a vacation there. Someone sees it on TV and then they say, Jacksonville will be where I summer. I find at least part of that uh, a little bit incredulous. But, you know, is there any way quantifiable you could dismiss that? Well, I mentioned that there's a lot of other studies besides my own studies of of sales and and occupancy. There's a lot of people that have studied growth of income, patterns of income, per capita income, growth of populations. If that was true, then what you ought to find is an increase in, in population influxes, an increase in income in the months or years that follow a Super Bowl, or in the time after you acquire a team, like an expansion team in the NFL or Major League Baseball or something. And what we found uniformly is that either there's no change or, or the growth rates slow down. One of, our, one of my colleagues, and I can never remember exactly the numbers, but it's, this would be pretty close, said that the presence of a, of a major professional sports team in your community raises per capita income by about $50 apiece, raises per capita taxes about 75. <laughs> so the, the, what we're finding is that uh, because, again, these things are so national in their scope, uh, uh, that the, the support for a team actually reduces the activity in your community. You're now exporting it to player salaries and owners that, that typically don't live in your community. All right. Thanks to NPR's Mike Pesca for that interview with Philip Porter of uh, the University of South Florida. And now we're going to come to that piece of tape you heard at the top of the show. Let's run that full clip. All right. 
It is true that we cannot depend on government alone to create jobs or long-term growth. But at this particular moment, only government can provide the short-term boost necessary to lift us from a recession this deep and severe. Only government can break the cycle that are crippling our economy, where a lack of spending leads to lost jobs, which leads to even less spending, where an inability to lend and borrow stops growth and leads to even less credit. Okay, so this is from President Obama's big speech, as we said, a couple weeks ago. Um, and back, this was back when he was still president-elect, not president yet. Um, and it was the first time he really sort of gave the details of this massive outlay of federal money that he was going to do. Um, since then, of course, the plan has taken a little bit more shape. The House just passed a version of the stimulus bill calling for over $800 billion in government spending and tax cuts. Um, and back during the speech... Obama laid out a bunch of details of his plan where he wanted to spend the money. He said he would double the production of alternative energy. He would expand access to the Internet, rebuild roads and bridges. But one detail he gave about his plan wasn't, strictly speaking, true. It's a plan that represents not just new policy, but a whole new approach to meeting our most urgent challenges. In fact, though many of President Obama's details are modern, his plan itself is straight out of a very old playbook. Alex, you and Adam Davidson did a story about that playbook for NPR and This American Life. This playbook happened to be developed before World War II in the depths of the Great Depression by a foul-mouthed British elitist who has been called arrogant, supercilious, unbearably boorish, and that is by his friends. <laughs> right, his enemies, they really, really hated him. Yeah, but he so happens to be one of the most brilliant economists of the 20th century. You've probably heard his name. You're going to hear it a lot more. John Maynard Keynes. Here to tell you more are Alex and Adam. Keynes published his big theory, the theory underpinning President Obama's fiscal stimulus, in 1936. And many would argue that 73-year-old theory is being tested right now for the very first time. And Adam, you've been carrying around Keynes' thousand-page biography for weeks now, getting ready for this story. Yeah, it's the abridged version, by the way. It's by this guy, Lord Robert Skidelsky. It is a great read because Keynes is a totally fascinating character. Every few pages, I'm switching between thinking he's an amazing, charming genius and thinking he's a narrow-minded jerk. He ran with the Bloomsbury group, you know, like Virginia Woolf and all those painters and poets. They were all into free love and raunchy language. And they used to complain in letters to each other that Keynes was just way too dirty for them. He loved hurling himself on the public stage with some outrageous, shocking opinion. And he was really all over the place. Sometimes he's almost a socialist. Then he's fanatically defending free markets. But there is a common thread a thread of elitism. Yeah, elitism, exactly. He generally felt that almost any problem could be solved by getting together a bunch of young men who had gone to Cambridge and asking them to run things. Every once in a while, he might be okay with an Oxford man, but really, Cambridge was best. He even wanted Cambridge men to run America. He didn't think anyone in the U.S. was smart enough. He also didn't like Jews, the French, the working class. And he wrote that these Cambridge-led government boards should do everything from running individual companies to determining how many babies should be born and, he wrote cryptically, of what quality. He was, after all, on the board of the British Eugenic Society. So here we are in modern-day America, millions of working men and women in peril, and this is the guy we're turning to, a bigoted America-phobe who hates working men and women? The short answer is yes. 
And it's all because of this book he wrote in the 1930s, his prescription for how to get out of a global depression. It was his masterpiece, published in 1936, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. I've read The General Theory about five times, I would guess. I think the first time I read it, I was maybe 18. Tyler Cowen is an economist at George Mason University, and he's very publicly reading Keynes' masterwork again, this time writing notes and conducting a discussion on his blog, Marginal Revolution. Cowan says in the general theory, Keynes corrected what he saw as a fundamental error in the economics that had come before. Under classical economics, if there's a downturn, the economy will sort itself out. If people aren't buying enough, prices will drop to where people start spending. Keynes's radical insight was to look out the window in the 1930s and see that sometimes things don't right themselves. And the economy goes into a downward spiral. Everything just gets worse and worse. And it looked in the 1930s as if that's what were, was happening, and to some extent it was. A failure of effective demand, he called it. This is another economist, Alan Blinder at Princeton, who is an economic advisor to President Clinton. A failure of effective demand, he says, is basically that people aren't spending enough money, either because they don't have any or because they got laid off or they're afraid they're going to get laid off. And if people aren't spending enough money, there's no way for the economy to automatically adjust. And in the 1930s, nobody else had figured out how to get people spending again. The Keynesian prescription is if all else fails, the government can spend the money. So normally we don't say in a, in a free market economy, well, the government. We say, well, people and businesses uh, should do it. But Keynes' idea, which was revolutionary at the time, is if the private sector won't do it, then the public sector can do it as a fill-in, stopgap. Blinder, like lots of Keynesians, says that's basically what happened. Government spending got us out of the Depression. It took a while. FDR only spent as much as Keynes wanted after World War II started. But after the war, for about 30 years, Keynesianism was mainstream economic theory, at least in the U.S. and Britain. And Keynes' disciples came to believe that his theories could be used in a much more precise way to control the economy than Keynes himself ever believed. Alan Blinder, the Keynesian economist at Princeton, says that there was a triumphant sense among Keynesians that by carefully tweaking taxes and spending, government could overcome booms and busts, master the business cycle, permanently eliminate recessions. There was a view that developed in the 1960s and developed excessively, one must admit in retrospect, that we could steer the national economy pretty well. Not perfectly, but pretty well. If you pick up Walter Heller's book that was written in the 1960s, Walter Heller was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors for Kennedy. The amount of optimism exuded there is, seems almost laughable. This is a watch we were pa repairing. One way the economy is not like a watch? To repair a watch, you don't need politicians. Politicians took the Keynesian message that government spending can be good, and they basically went nuts. They paid for the war on poverty, the Vietnam War. They sent a man to the moon, convinced that Keynes gave them a free pass for all this spending. For Keynesians, this is always a problem. Prescribing Keynesianism to some politicians is like prescribing crack to a coke addict. And in the 1970s, the patient hit rock bottom. We had high unemployment, and the Keynesian solution stopped working. We spent and spent, and unemployment only got worse. And we got inflation, something Keynesians had no answer for. After that, it was the Keynesians' turn to walk in the wilderness. 
when I took macroeconomics in the 1980s and early 1990s, the textbooks explained the basic Keynesian system, but then spent a few chapters showing why the Keynesian system did not work. This is economist Chris Edwards with the avowedly anti-Keynesian Cato Institute, a think tank founded in 1977 near Keynesianism's lowest point. I thought the debate was settled uh, in the 80s, and I thought we all agreed uh, that Keynesianism doesn't work. Uh, But uh, now, with the new stimulus package before Congress, uh, all these Keynesians have come out of the woodwork, and I'm wondering where all the theorists are that oppose the Keynesian system. Did you know there were Keynesians around? (laughs) Sure, but I thought the sort of kindergarten Keynesianism, as I call it, the simple idea that the government could spend more money to grow the economy, I thought that really sort of simple Keynesian idea had died in the 1970s, but I was wrong. Chris is part of a school of thought that replaced Keynesianism. That school says government spending causes more problems than it solves. To control an economy, these people think, the best way is to have the Fed, the Federal Reserve, control interest rates. And this view has held pretty much until exactly one month ago, December 16th, 2008, to be precise. That's the day the Fed tried to stabilize the economy by lowering interest rates all the way down to zero percent. They can't go lower, but the economy kept getting worse. Their main tool seemed to have stopped working. So economists and policymakers started looking around for some other way to fix things. They found that there was this one guy in particular who'd given a lot of thought about how to get out of a situation like this. Okay, so here's the way Keynes would have done it. So you measure here uh, output, and then you have to have an estimate of what economists like to call potential GDP. We're in Alan Blinder's office at Princeton, which conveniently has a blackboard, and he's up there applying Keynes's formula to figure out exactly what the Obama administration should spend to get us out of the mess we're in. It's actually pretty simple. You start with some estimates, where the economy should be, where it actually is. You throw in something called the Keynesian multiplier. Blinder does the math in about 14 seconds. So that would lead you to conclude that you needed about $650 billion as a stimulus. Voila. Have you done this more rigorously for yourself? I've not, but I hope they have. Right now, a lot of economists are supporting the idea of a stimulus package. There are people you'd expect, like Paul Krugman, a proud Keynesian at the New York Times, and some surprises, like President Reagan's chief economic advisor, Martin Feldstein. But many economists say they just don't know. Financial catastrophes don't happen often enough to prove anything. In fact, as Alan Blinder will tell you, this is the problem with economics. The biggest problem with learning things in economics is the inability to do controlled experiments. So we don't have, unlike what is the case in many but not all scientists, sciences, the definitive experiment, right? This experiment they did in the 1920s proved that Einstein was right about the perturbation of mercury. It proved it. We can never do that in economics. The best you can have is a really good theory. The best you can have is a real good theory. It's not going to work perfectly in a textbook manner uh, all the time. The anti-Keynesians, they say this massive stimulus package is too risky an experiment on an unproven theory. It might not get us out of the recession. It might cause vicious inflation, a bloated government. 
and we'll have a trillion more dollars in debt as a constraining burden on our kids and grandkids. The Obama administration is betting this won't happen. They're trusting this theory. They're trusting Keynes. Alex, that is a great story from you and Adam. Thank you. Thanks very much. And you and you can hear uh, the longer version uh, this weekend on This American Life. With those cool little music interludes. With complete with music and everything, yep. Yeah. All right. Finally, we have some business to attend to. We ask listeners, you guys out there, to vote on names for the economic crisis. And this was inspired by a segment from, uh, from one of our beloved uh, contributors, Hannah Jaffe-Walt. I voted myself. I actually went through some of the comments that were out there. People had suggested different names after her segment. I went through and I completely arbitrarily pulled out a half dozen or so that I liked myself. And I voted for Economageddon. <laughs> I actually wanted Great Recession to win. Uh-huh. Why, so why did you vote for one that you didn't want to win? I don't understand. As I thought it sounded best. Uh-huh. Great Recession is more has is, has is classier and a little bit more dignified, but like you just like economic how do you even say that? Economageddon. E- Yeah, <laughs> I think Great Recession is actually what people are most likely to be saying 50 years from now. Right. If they're going to call this the Great Recession. And I do want my T-shirt, by the way, if anyone is designing out there. So, so what did win? I'm sad to say, or I suppose I should say, congratulations to Pond's Economy. We had <laughs> I like it. It's cute, but it's not what people are going to say in 50 years. I don't, I don't care. We had 957 people vote, and it was Pond's Economy with 223. I think I would have gone for Pond's Economy, actually. I, I, sort of, I, I like it. 50 years from now, people are going to say Pond's Economy? Well, maybe not. All right. One last thing. Adam Davidson and Simon Johnson and Arnold Kling are going to be doing a live chat on NPR.org Monday at noon Eastern time. It's about whether we should nationalize the banks. I think it will be very cool. I'm going to link to it from our blog. You guys will be instrumental in getting this thing going. It'll be at NPR.org slash money, among other places. All right. And that's it for us today. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening.